If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we'll continue in the last couple verses. Actually, the last verse, I was trying to see if I could get through verses 7 and 8, but it didn't happen in the first service, so it probably won't happen this service. We are looking at some issues in the text before us that a lot of people have read in the following context and have thought, oh boy, what what are you going to teach on there? Well, believe me, I'm going to teach on just what the text says to the best of my ability about issues related to women and worship and their role um, in public gatherings like um, we are having right now. And uh, some people are a little exercised about it and want to know everything beforehand. And uh, I just want you to know, I can't tell you everything beforehand because uh, I haven't studied everything beforehand, but uh, I will give it to you bite by bite every week. And uh, I would encourage you um, as we go through uh, this uh, next week and the following weeks as we're, we're dealing with the issues to just wait until the whole series is over before you say, what about this passage? Because I can't address every passage in one day to its full extent. As a matter of fact, I can't address the passage to their full extent in the month of February. But I'm going to try and do at least... Uh, justice to all the key texts that relate to women and worship and leadership and all of those types of things. And so please do not bombard the elders or corner them or, you know, bombard us with email um, about what is what is your view here and what is your view here. I would encourage you to take diligent notes and uh, to listen carefully. And when we get through this section, then if you have more questions, by all means, attack the elders especially the lay elders. <laughs> I want you to know that it's not um, what I want. Um, I'm not trying to have any agenda here. All I'm trying to do is faithfully teach the Word of God, and that's what I'm going to do. Um, and that's uh, the whole goal of uh, why I'm up here. If I'm going to give you my opinions, then you might as well go home because I don't have much to say. All right, let's look at the text before us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and remind ourselves of what Paul has been doing in this passage before we look at verse 7 this morning. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 8, Paul is, begins this section dealing with public worship. We know that because he has just talked about church discipline and the... the um, Two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who shipwrecked their faith in, cha- in chapter 1, verse 20. And then he says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. He begins with this exhortation to pray. And we know from chapter 2 all the way verse um, through chapter 3, he is talking about how one, according to 3.15, how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. So he's giving us an overview of some key issues, issues that were very pertinent to the Ephesian church in specific, but also which relate to all the churches of all the ages. And he says, first of all, I want you to pray. And he lists these four ways they should pray. And that the kind of people they should be praying for is all men. 
kings and all who are in authority. And the reason he does that is he's trying to say, listen, we need to pray for every single person. And we're going to find out that in the following context, it's evangelism. If you've been here in the last couple of weeks, you know that. And he's saying you need to pray for the salvation of all men. And it's interesting that he takes two categories, subcategories of all men, and that you know all men would include everyone. But he says all men and then says kings and all who are in authority. The reason he singles out those two groups, the leaders of society, the leaders of government, is he's trying to give us a picture of what to pray for and why. And the reason we are to pray for those two subgroups is that they are the ones who make the laws in society. They are the ones who either grant freedoms to Christians so that they may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, or who make them, you know, laws that cause them to be persecuted or thrown in jail. So his whole thrust here is evangelism, and he says, I want you to be praying so that all men would be saved, especially for the rulers, so that we can have tranquil and quiet lives and all godliness and dignity, so we can effectively share the gospel without being persecuted. This is his whole point in letting that out. He wants them to do that. Then, in verses 3 and 4, he gives the reason why we should be praying for these things. And he, and he gives four, actually. He says, one, God finds it good. Two, God finds it acceptable. Three, God desires all men to be saved. And four, he desires these men who are saved to come to a full knowledge of the truth. And so that is why we need to pray for the salvation of all men and pray for freedom to evangelize. Then he continues the thought in verses 5 and 6, if you look there, by describing some of the motivations behind God desiring all men to be saved. He says, listen, pray for all men that they would be saved. The reason is that God desires all the men to be saved. And the reason he desires all men to be saved is there is only one God who can save. And there is only one mediator between God and men. And the reason Christ is the only mediator is he gave himself as a ransom for all. And for he was the testimony born at the proper time. Basically, because God sent his son to die for the sins of the world. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is the, the reason why God desires all men, why you should be praying for all men and their salvation. Because God wants to see them saved as he sent his son to die as a ransom for all. So, having said that, he concludes this section with basically three characteristics or descriptions of his ministry followed by an exhortation to prayer. If you have your outline, you will see Paul the preacher and then Paul the apostle and then it should say Paul the teacher and then Paul's exhortation to pray. I don't think we'll get to the fourth point today. If you are taking notes, you want to make sure that uh, you fix that because you'll be writing down a whole bunch of stuff in the wrong spot. All right, let's look at verse 7. Paul, after he says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petition and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as 
a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher. Now, just stop there. The phrase for this refers back to everything Paul has said in verses 1 through 6, but especially this whole business of Jesus being the ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. It is for that reason, the gospel ministry, that God appointed Paul to be a preacher. Now, the word appointed is a, is a passive verb, which means that Paul did not appoint himself. He was appointed by God. And this is important. Paul, as you know, was not friendly to Christianity. He appointed himself to destroy the church. That's what Paul appointed himself to do. He was trying to wipe out the church. He was persecuting Christians aggressively. He was trying to wipe out Christianity. And then God appointed him. God basically turned him around. And gave him a commission that was not his own commission, not his own desire, but God's desire. And as you look at preachers just in general, there are basically two kinds. There are those who are appointed by God and those who are not. Those are the only two categories there are. Now, the tragedy of today is many people, for wrong motives, want to be preachers. They want to be preachers because they want power, they want control, they want fame, they want pleasure, they want people to like them or whatever. And because of all of these reasons, they then appoint themselves to be preachers. You know, I'll go into the ministry, I'll try it out, I'll see if I can make some money at it or whatever. And so they're trying to get into the ministry to do um, uh, something that they are not called to do. Now the tragedy of it all is many of these people are very good orators. They're very good in elocution, in, um, in speaking. But what they are not gifted to do is preach the word of God. And what happens is, is people then come to church, they sit under these people, and all of a sudden they're confused. Because the communication is not clear. Or maybe the communication is crystal clear. It's just nothing about the word of God. The preacher gets up there and reads a verse and departs and never returns again. And afterwards they think, well, was that a sermon? I mean, they, they never are able to experience um, the word of God. They never have anybody look at the text and show them what it says. They're, they're somewhere else. And week after week, the people come and they're, they're wanting to know God's word. They're wanting to be fed, but no one ever really gets into the text. And that is because the person often behind the pulpit um, is not gifted to be a preacher. And this is um, important in that God would never call anybody to a preaching ministry if he did not also give them the gifts commensurate with the calling. And we need to remember that. The gifts... And the calling always go together. You know, you have somebody who says, hey, you know, I have got to be a preacher. But then when he preaches, you know, it just kills people and um, no one gets fed and no one understands what he's saying. And he's a nice guy and he loves the Lord, but man, it's not happening. That person is kind of the guy who's playing pitcher when he should be shortstop. He's out of his position. And we need to make sure that those who uh, we raise up in this body 
are actually gifted to be what they feel the calling is in their life. And that only comes with time. If you were to look at um, chapter 1, verse 12, look back there. This word, um, when Paul says here, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful. Here's the word, putting me into service. That same word might be translated appointed. It is the same word that appears in our text. So he says in both of these places that God appointed him, put him, commissioned him, made him go into service. It's kind of like jury duty. Um, You know, not very many people that I have ever heard of. As a matter of fact, no one has ever called up uh, begging to serve on jury duty. Um, It's not something that's fun to do. Yet, they call you and they tell you when you must show up. That is an appointment. An appointment with authority. And that is what it means to be in a preacher. A preacher is not just one who proclaims, not just a speaker. He is one who is appointed with the authority latent in the word of God and the call of God. Turn over to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. And um, I'll just show you as Paul is giving his testimony to Agrippa, he describes his call to the ministry. Acts 26, verse 16. Now, Paul is standing before Agrippa. He has talked to him about, you know, how he was struck by this big light in the Damascus Road and how Jesus appeared to him and and how he had this personal encounter. Now he's telling Agrippa what Jesus said to him. And he says this in verse 16. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from Jewish people and from the Gentiles. Now, what's interesting here is he not only Jesus not only was going to appear to him, but notice he says things in which I will appear to you. He's Paul is telling Agrippa that when he had his first appearance, Jesus promised another appearance, and we're going to look at that in a minute. Then he goes on to say, um, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who have been sanctified in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. You see, it was compulsory in his life. Paul did not sit around and go, well, let's see, what should I do? No. I mean, it was just like there was just no question. So he didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring, uh, proclaiming, preaching both to the uh, those of Damascus first and also Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and performing deeds appropriate with repentance. That is to obey or to live in according with their profession of faith. Now, all the callings that men have to preach are not that dramatic. I mean, I was never struck by uh, a light and never saw a heavenly vision. Um, For me, it was something rather interesting. I I just became a Christian and um, just had this desire to know more. And uh, soon I thought, you know, I'd like to be able to preach the Bible someday. 
And so I um, just kept studying and I kept studying. And what is interesting is uh, I was not even a regular churchgoer, but I was a fanatic Bible reader. And uh, I was a commercial fisherman in Hawaii when I would go out on these 70-day runs out at sea. And uh, I would just go to the Christian bookstore and buy stacks of books and just read them. I was so hungry to know the truth. And pretty soon I thought, man, I need to get to the place where I can teach. I need to go to seminary. And so I enrolled in an electronics program. <laughs> and uh, you might be wondering why a person would do that. Well, I checked into Bible colleges and they were so expensive that they scared me. Um, I had no financial backing. I was uh, too dumb to get any scholarships and worked too hard to get any grants. And so I was one of those middle people who, um, you know, was not real smart and, uh, you know, made too much money because uh, I had a job. And so I didn't get anything free. And so I had to put myself through school. So after seeing how much, you know, Christian training was, I thought, well, that would be good. But uh, there was no one in my life who stepped forward to offer to pay my way. And being the youngest of eight kids, you know, my mom and dad just said, ha, oh, be warm and filled. So... <laughs> So I decided that I would uh, go to electronics, and the only reason I picked that field is I thought anywhere I go, I could get a job in electronics technology. So I got one degree, I got another degree, and then I thought, okay, I'm ready now. I'm going to go to seminary, and I'm going to work in electronics. I'm going to put myself through seminary. And then uh, I painted houses. And... um, I discovered that if I got a job in the electronics field, they want me to be there certain hours, and it wasn't good for my seminary career. So then I decided, well, okay, I'll paint houses. Then I could just, you know, do 14-hour days, two days a week, and get in the time I needed and provide for my family. And Lisa, she um, was teaching when we didn't have any kids, and we squeaked through. The whole point is, is that from a very early time. In my, from my conversion, that's all I wanted to do. I never flinched. I've been in school for 14 years after high school. I never flinched. I had as my desire to go to seminary and to preach and teach, and it's just never gone away. And people say, well, why don't you do something else? I told somebody the other day I had this really great time. Right before I finished graduating from Boise State University, they flew me to this other city and where the main store, I worked at this electrical plumbing supply house. And, and, you know, they're whining and dining me. And, you know, I thought it was just something that they did when they asked you to go do a promotion thing. And pretty soon the owner's there and all the managers are there. And they lay down this huge package and say, we want you to manage one of our stores. I thought, ooh. They said, this is what we're going to pay you. Whoa. I mean, I was a starving college student. Man, that's good. Then they told me all the benefits and all the profit sharing and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, Lord, help me, help me. And I said, well, guys, you know, that sounds good. But I'm going to be a preacher. And you should have seen the look on their face. (laughs) And the owner of the company said, um, do you see what we're offering you here? And I said, yeah. I said, man, it's incredible. He says, do preachers make that much money? I said, I think only TV evangelists. <laughs> and I just told him, listen, I can't do anything else. I'm going to be a preacher. And so 
that was kind of political suicide, and I didn't work there much longer. But the whole point is, is that somebody who is called to the ministry will have a compulsion, not that the ministry is something they might want to try, but that it's the only thing they can do. Charles Spurgeon said, if you want to be a preacher but can do anything else, do something else. He said, if you can do anything else with your life, do it. Only be a preacher if that is the only thing you could ever do. And I throw that out because there are many people out there who are using the ministry as a tool, as a tool to advance their cause. And a lot of times when preachers get up and they preach, some people don't realize that there is a difference between preaching and lecturing and giving talks or teaching. You know, a lot of times somebody will come out there and say, oh, good talk or good, um, good uh, lecture. I think, hmm, no, that was not a lecture. That's what your mother gives you when you do what's wrong. There's a difference, and I just want to lay this out before you because I think a lot of people are, are confused. You know, I've had people come up to me since I've been here and say, man, Jack, man, you, I, you're so in your face, man. You're just like in our face, you know. Why? I, I just, I feel so convicted every time I leave, and I'm thinking, oh, good. <laughs> Praise God, man, I'm doing something right. And... And people go, well, why is that? You know, I mean, why is that? You know, I mean, I thought you'd come here and I would feel good. And I say, well, you should feel good if you're doing what the Bible says. And if you're disobeying God, you shouldn't feel good. And see, there's a difference. And this is what I want to lay out. Lecturing is one-way communication. It's usually done in the third person. The lecturer talks about some other person in some other place in some other epic, or he talks about some item, some research, something. He is just giving one-way communication, imparting data to you, period. That's what a lecturer is. And part of preaching is lecturing, and part of teaching might be lecturing. There's overlap. But he is talking about the most abstract, distant form of communication, no in your face. Then there is teaching, which is another form of imparting knowledge. But the teacher, his goal is to impart information through dialogue. In other words, the teacher says, so, what do you see here in verse 2? I mean, look at it. Do you think Paul's saying this or Paul's saying that? He said, now, if you were to sum up this section, how would you put it? And what the teacher tries to do is take his students and bring them to an understanding of what he is trying to teach them. And in a Christian context, it's what the Word of God says. You're not having a pooling of ignorance. You're having a time of guiding so people can see for themselves and discover for themselves what the Word of God says. That's what teaching is. It is more personal, too, because in a Christian context, it's always the imparting of information so that it will affect behavior. And so you're trying to not only give them the data, but show them what to do with the data. It's very practical. And instead of talking about they, them, and theirs, you're talking about we, us, and ours. You include yourself. You're trying to have a dialogue with. You're, you know, you're, you're we, us, and houring here. Let's look at this. Let's come to an understanding of this. So the teacher, the equipped one, the one who has studied ahead, then takes his students and brings them to a knowledge of the truth and how to apply that truth. That's what teaching is. 
Now, preaching is something different yet. Preaching is, like lecturing, one-way communication. But it's different in that it is authoritative communication. Preaching is an act whereby God speaks through the, pe- through the preacher to the people. That's what preaching is. Preaching is the most personal, in-your-face form of communication. The preacher uses second-person address, you know, you and your. A good place to look at this is in Matthew chapter 5 um, through 7, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to turn there and, uh, you know, if you want to do some doodling uh, this uh, service, the rest of the service, all you have to do is get your pen out or pencil and underline or circle every single you and your in the 111 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's not a very big sermon, 111 verses. But if somebody were to ask you, how many Second persons, you, yours, and yourselves, do you think are found in those 111 verses? There are 114 yous. There are 76 yours and two yourselves for a grand total of 192 second persons. That, people, is in your face. You can't get any more in your face than... You have heard it said, well, I tell you, unless you do this and you have heard, well, you better do this. And you did that. I'll let your light shine before men. And if you don't, then you will. I mean, that's the whole business. That, people, is preaching. So if you wonder why you leave feeling in your face, then that's why. Because that's what I'm trying to be, in your face. And a lot of people think, oh, man, I never knew that. Well, now you do. So the preacher is not just up here to suggest truth, to um, offer truth, but to proclaim or herald or command the truth of the scriptures, as Paul tells Timothy, with all authority. The preacher submits to the word of God, and as long as he is submitting to the word of God and handling God's word accurately, then he is authoritative. His authority begins and ends with the scriptures. If he departs from the scriptures, then you can fall asleep. But as long as he's staying with the scriptures, then it is authoritative because it is the word of God, the very voice of God to the people of God. Do you remember what happened after Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus is finished speaking, the people were amazed. Why? Because he spoke to them as one having authority and not as their scribes and um, the Pharisees had taught. Now, what made him so authoritative? Well, one is, is his second person address. Another is, is that the scribes and the Pharisees, whenever they would teach, they would always refer to other rabbis. The rabbis would take the rabbis and they would quote other rabbis and pretty soon they had this huge, you know, conglomeration of rabbis to quote from. And that was, quote, their authority. You know, Gamaliel said this. And people, oh, if he said that, then it must be true. And so they would use different people and different rabbis in their camp and they would quote those as their source of authority. So here Jesus is in his public ministry. He goes out there. He's got this huge crowd of people and he never quotes a single man. He only quotes the word of God. And when he was done, the people were amazed because he spoke to them as one having authority. 
The Greek word for preacher is kerux. And outside the Bible, in extra biblical literature, a kerux was a public proclaimer. Let's say the king had some proclamation he wanted to give, so he would, he would get a kerux and give him authority to go out through all the kingdom and proclaim, you know, the British are coming or whatever. And so that's what was kind of going on. That's what a kerux was, a herald, a proclaimer of some sort of message. But he had this authoritative commission standing behind him. If you rejected the one sent, you were rejecting the one who sent him. And that is important to know. And Paul was not merely a messenger. He was a messenger with authority. And he had a message of authority because he was commissioned by God himself. So in the New Testament, a biblical preacher is God's ambassador, herald, or proclaimer vested with authority from God to preach the word of God. Now, a good place to see this, and I just want to look at this a little bit further, is in Hebrews chapter 3. Turn there. Hebrews chapter 3. You know, you think, well, Jack, this sounds kind of scary that, you know, when you're preaching to us, that that's the voice of God. I mean, I know you, and I know you aren't God. Well, believe me, I know I'm not God, too. So, I'm not deceived. But I want you to know that when the preacher, any preacher, proclaims God's truth accurately from the Scriptures, that is the voice of God. Now, look at chapter 3, verse 7. In this section... The author of Hebrews is trying to get these fence-sitting Jews to get off the wall, to commit to Jesus Christ. And he quotes Psalm 95, verse 7 says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. Now, what's interesting is he says, just as the Holy Spirit says. And it makes you wonder, who is the Holy Spirit? God. And who said this psalm? David. But then if you go to Psalm 95, you'll find out that David is talking about Moses. And when Moses spoke to the people. So what David is saying, do you remember when Moses spoke to the people as the voice of God? Well, today, if you hear his voice, whose voice? Not Moses' voice, God's voice. Do not harden your heart. He says, when Moses spoke to them, he spoke to them as the messenger, the voice of God. And when David offered salvation in his day and age, when he wrote the psalm, he did the same thing. Today is today, you know, January 28th. And in the first service, I said 29th. That was off a day. Oh, well. And so somebody always lets me know if I, you know, even deviate a little bit. That was a Jack Hughesism. And so the whole point is, is that he's saying, listen, if you hear God's word preached, you hear the voice of God. That is how God is speaking today. Now, look down further, because this is really interesting. Look at what verse 15 says of chapter 3. After he has described this whole passage and quoted it, he's saying, be taking care that there's not an unbelieving heart and that none of you would fall away from the living God. And then he says, verse 13, for as long as, um, for encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, that is right now, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then he says in verse 15, while it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, you have to ask yourself, when were these people in New Testament times hearing the voice of God? Well, when they heard the word of God preached. 
Then he goes down, if you look in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of earning his rest, anyone of you should have come, seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us. The good news preached to us, the gospel. Just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. In other words, he said they failed to believe what was preached. So his conclusion is, as you go down after he makes this uh, several more arguments, is in verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today, saying before saying through David after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And then, of course, the end of the section in verses 12 and 13 talk about the word of God. The whole point is this. As the preacher submits himself to the word of God, he is speaking as the voice of God to the people of God. That is what a preacher is. It is a divine appointment. It has divine gifts, spiritual gifts, commensurate with that appointment. And that was what Paul was appointed to. Now, the second thing Paul was appointed to was an apostle. He was an apostle. Look at verse 7. After he says he was appointed a preacher, he also says that he was an apostle. Now, he puts on this interesting phrase, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. But let's just look at the apostle first. There's a general and specific definition of apostle in the New Testament. In general... All of us are apostles. We are all sent, as the Great Commission tells us, to go and preach the gospel, to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. That, in essence, is every one of our tasks as we are all to be disciples, we are all to go, and we are all apostles in a very general sense. Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, is one who is called an apostle, a sent one, and apostolos is the Greek word. And that is why he is um, sent out as one. Now, he is not a specific definition of apostle, not an apostle with a big A. And there is a difference because there are a certain group of men who are apostles of Jesus Christ, messengers commissioned with authority. Jesus um, was uh, calling men to himself. He called these 12 men. And remember, one of them was uh, Judas who ended up to betray. But these men he commissioned and even Judas, he gave divine authority to heal the sick and cast out demons and do all of these things. He sent them out to preach. Mark 3.14 says, And he, that's Jesus, appointed the 12 so that he would be with him so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach. So part of being apostle includes being a preacher, but the terms are not synonymous, and that apostle emphasizes being sent. Being sent, that's what it literally means, a sent one. So Paul is saying he was appointed not only to be a preacher, but also to be a sent one. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. And I just want to show you some more qualities of an apostle. Because an apostle, I mean, anybody can say, oh, well, God sent me. Because that's true, isn't it? I mean, aren't we all to go out and uh, share Christ with people? So does that make us all apostles with a big A? Well, no. Why is that? Look at Acts 
1, verse 21. Now, what, Paul, what Peter is doing here is he has described, he has already quoted Psalm 69, 25, a messianic psalm where David prays a curse. It's called an imprecatory prayer. That is, uh, instead of praying blessings on people, you pray that God would destroy them and wipe them out and curse them. You know, I don't know if I've ever dared to pray those kind of prayers on anybody, um, but uh, David did, and he says here that that he would he would this curse would come down on those who would betray and persecute the Lord's anointed, and then he quotes um, another psalm, which is Psalm 109, and in Psalm 109, verse 8, it talks about another time where he um, describes that those who who persecute the Lord's anointed should have a curse upon them that their office should be taken away and it should be given to another. And so Peter then quotes these two psalms, melds them together and says, therefore, because Judas, who was an original apostle, betrayed the Lord and then subsequently hung himself, therefore we should appoint another man and they appoint Matthias. But look at what verse 21 says because he gives qualifications here that describe what an apostle is. Now, they're trying to decide who they should pick and what the qualifications are. And he says, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of us of his resurrection. Here, Peter lists several criteria. One, they needed to be with Jesus from the beginning of John the Baptist all the way through his ministry, all the way through his death. Secondly, they needed to be there to see his resurrection. Thirdly, they needed to see him ascend in his ascension. And he says that's what we are going to, to, uh, to use as our quality qualifiers for picking a new man. So they get a couple guys and they pick Matthias. If you were to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, in this section, Paul is defending his apostolic ministry. He's describing why um, he is an apostle and why he has the right to be an apostle. And all these people were attacking him, saying, oh, he's not an apostle, he's a make-believe. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So, here we get some of the rest of the picture. You know, you have somebody come up to you and there's a lot of cults and isms out there who say, yo, I'm an apostle or whatever. And uh, in that, they're all trying to claim that they have some authority, therefore you should listen to them. And so what happens is, is Paul says, listen, you want to be an apostle? This is all you got to do. All you have to do is perform signs and wonders and miracles with perseverance. Now, Not very many people are able to do that. As a matter of fact, I don't know of anyone. And Peter adds, and you got to be with Jesus from the time of his ministry all the way to the end, and you have to see him after his resurrection and in his ascension. Well, that kind of narrowed down the field, doesn't it? I mean, that gets it so narrow that, yeah, there's probably only 12 of them. And that's exactly right, until Paul came along. Paul was an apostle, in his own words, born out of time. He was a man who came on the scene, and uh, he describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, as he was the last of all, 
As to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, that is speaking of Christ, for I am the least of all the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That is how Paul saw his whole ministry. He felt, you could tell that all through his life, he just grieved that he was the champion persecutor of the church. But he had this appointment, this call, and he couldn't turn back from the call. And even though he wasn't with Jesus all the time from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus made him an apostle. Now, the reason the apostles needed to be with Jesus is because they needed to be there and hear firsthand everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did. So you might ask yourself, well, Paul definitely saw Jesus after his resurrection. But where did Paul get all of this instruction that Jesus gave from the beginning? Well, turn to Galatians chapter 1. And I'll show you. Galatians chapter 1. Paul defending his apostolic ministry um, and why he is an apostle and how he became acquainted with the gospel and the things of Christianity said this in Galatians 1 verse 11. He said, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Paul says, listen, I didn't get this from people. But he goes on to say, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now look down at verse 15. He says, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. It's like he told Agrippa, huh? He says, man, I didn't consult the flesh here. I didn't say, hey, you know, should I do this? No. Well, what did he do? Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So Paul went away to Arabia and something happened there. What was that? He received direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Look on down at verse... Um, well, let's just keep reading. Then he says, verse 18, Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem and became acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him. So he went to Arabia, then came back to Damascus, then three years after that, went to Jerusalem, and then finally got to meet Peter and stayed with him only for 15 days. So Peter didn't unload on him and tell him everything, and neither did James, because he met the Lord's brother, verse 19. But look at verse 2. Or chapter 2, verse 1. Then he says, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. His whole point is this. No one taught me what I know about Christianity. Peter didn't. James didn't. None of the other apostles. I never even met them. I got all my information from Jesus Christ himself, who, through this long time period, that is a long time to go to seminary, and it just shows that he did go to the master's seminary. Um, <laughs> Fourteen years, he received this direct revelation from Jesus Christ, and that he received that information and that commission to the gospel ministry. And that is important because Paul is trying to establish the fact that he himself is a preacher, apostle, and then the third thing, a teacher. This is the third description. 
He is a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This phase describes the direction of his ministry. Sure, he's a preacher. Sure, he's an apostle. But where to? Who is he preaching to? Gentiles in faith and truth. That is what his whole emphasis was. And Paul, of course, went out to preach to the Gentiles, as it says in Ephesians 3.8, the unfathomable riches of Christ. That was his goal. That was his life. That's why he lived. And, of course, he suffered very much. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, he talked about his teaching ministry when he says, You yourselves know how for three years I taught you both publicly and from house to house. That is, he dialogued with them. He showed them the scriptures. He reasoned with them. He brought them to an understanding of God's word. And so by mentioning his qualifications, Paul puts an authoritative stamp on everything he is going to say and has said already. And what's interesting is he uses this little phrase, I am telling the truth and not lying. Now, why do you think that was the case? Because Paul was this apostle who was untimely born, and everybody wanted to attack him. I mean, you know, you think of this guy who's a major persecutor, and now he has all these people who are trying to discredit him. And so quite a bit of his letters have defense of his gospel. What is else is interesting is you think if this letter was only written to Timothy, he would have... Timothy would have already known that. He knew who Paul was. I mean, he lived with him for years. And this tells us that this message is not only to Timothy, but to the entire church of Ephesus and to the entire Christian church in a very overarching way that we need to know that what Paul says here is backed up by divine appointment, by divine commission, and that whatever he teaches is faith and truth that encompasses the truth of God's word. And then from there, he launches into the whole issue of men and women in worship. And so I bring that to you, and we're going to stop right here because that's as far as we got last time. And just want to just summarize what's happening. Paul has told us to pray. He's told us to pray diligently for all men for their salvation. And, you know, I don't know if the last weeks of going through here has made you pray, but I just want you to be encouraged that it's working. Uh, From my knowledge, I believe five or six people have come to the Lord in the last um, week and a half here at Calvary Bible Church. And then that is encouraging to me. That is really encouraging. Um, One man came into our office and he, he knew nothing of the gospel. All he knew is his conscience bothered him. He drove by and saw the sign that said the salvation plan of God and thought he'd visit church to see what it was. And then he made an appointment, and then he received Christ. Another lady came in and talked to Justin Erickson, and Justin led her to the Lord, explained the gospel. She received Christ. Another person, Dave Hintz, was talking to, and... uh, that person he witnessed to, and the guy didn't receive Christ, and then went and talked to another friend who was a Christian and said, you know, do you think this is true? And the guy said, what, this born-again thing? And he says, yeah. And he says, well, what does it mean? So the guy shared Christ, and he accepted Christ. And John Richard led two other people to the Lord. And so God is leading people to the Lord, and maybe you have other stories. The whole point is don't stop praying because it's working, because God desires all men to be saved And now is the time, today is the day, to hear God's voice. 
So be encouraged with that, and next week we'll get into the nitty-gritty of men and women in worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are answering our prayers. We thank you that as we come before you, lifting up holy hands, asking that you would save the lost, that, Father, you hear our prayers and you answer our prayers. Father, we thank you that men and women are coming to a knowledge of what it means to be a Christian. And, Father, not only have that knowledge, but we have seen your spirit work in their lives and you have brought them to repentance and that through that they have been saved from the wrath to come. Father, if there is anyone here who doesn't know you now, Father, we beg you that you would move in their heart. If there's someone here who knows they need to be right with you, who knows that there's sin in their lives and they just are struggling knowing that they would have to give that up and they are holding on to it, Father, may you pry their heart loose from those things in which they are entangled. Father, grant them repentance. Open their hearts. Father, drive them to your Son. Father, we thank you for our salvation, for those of us who know you and pray that each one of us would take every opportunity to pray and to share our faith when opportunity arises. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.